Every person has a story, but not everyone has a place to tell it. I'm Frank Swoboda. I've interviewed amazing people all over the planet. I want you to meet them. This week, the most interesting person you've never heard of is... Hi, my name is Mandy Chapman Semple, and I'm the most interesting person you've never heard of because I've helped over 30,000 people experiencing homelessness find housing. Mandy, thanks for being here. Yeah, thanks for having so, me. So, um, usually I get to talk to people that I've met <laughs> or known I feel for like a we, while. I feel like we but know I feel each like other I now. Know you. No, I know. I feel like I know you because of, of all the work that we've done on housing and help and you know, trying to get our arms around our brains around the telling of the story of why homelessness why is this existing and are there as I've learned from our trip to Houston where you came from um, why uh, you know why you you'll never solve it as Mayor Parker said <laughs> but you can manage it if you do this sort of right right so um, I you know you now run the clutch consulting right clutch consulting group what is that and and who are you helping right now? And then I'll get into kind of yeah. how you got there. <laughs> yeah, we're just a small boutique consulting firm. Okay. Um, small but mighty, I like to say. And uh, we just offer our services to, to communities who are really interested in thinking about large-scale social system transformation. You know, do we want to reimagine the way we approach complex social issues? It usually starts and is anchored within homelessness response, but obviously homelessness response touches all sorts of other social response systems. And so it's about bringing all of those into alignment. And so we carry, you know, what we learn from each city into the next and try to, you know, get it. So we plan, but also get right into the field with our communities and help them implement. So we're usually in communities, say, three to five years on average, um, standing beside them, teaching them, building their capacity, but also testing new ideas and and um, learning from kind of the new conditions that are that are sometimes unique to different communities, but also just a reflection of the, sh- the economic shift that's happening in this country. So we tend to work in a on average, about seven cities at a time, mm-hmm. um, in various at various levels. So usually we have two or three cities that are going through a, f- a complete transformation, like like what Houston did um, when we were there, and then a handful of other cities that are interested in targeted work, and then uh, a handful of others that just need some consultation and support. So who are you working with right now? So right now we're um, deeply um, embedded within Dallas, and we have been for the last three years, and we're just seeing incredible progress there. Wait, 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 wait! Somebody from Houston is helping Dallas. They don't. They're not going to tell anybody that. No, we tell everybody. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, the people of Dallas will not no, believe this. You know what? Da- I mean, Dallas. Dallas was no, so eager kidding. to embrace what Houston <laughs> had to offer, yeah. and. You know, certainly the DNA of every city is the DNA of every yeah, city. It's yeah, yeah. it's different and unique, but um, you know they were very interested in how we uh, we apply what we know and understand to the the unique circumstances in Dallas. So we've you know That's Dallas cool. just saw a fourteen percent decrease. Just announced a fourteen percent decrease in unsheltered homelessness Whoa. in a year. Cheers! Cheers! Thanks. Oh my gosh. Yeah, thirty two percent reduction in chronic homelessness. So you know the targeted solutions are working even in you know these incredible economic times where we had a you know 17% increase in in rent in that yeah. same time period wow. so it was really cool so we're working there um we're about eight almost 18 months into transformation work in Oklahoma City um they wow. just announced an initiative they want to reduce unsheltered homelessness by 75% 
and we're going to try to get that goal. get that done in two years. Yep, they're they're wow. assembling all of the resources to make that happen, and it's all through encampment resolution. So they have a lot of small encampments hmm. all over the city, and so okay. it's about how do we help all of those individuals return to housing um, in a very intentional way. How do we empower the community to um, take take those public spaces and reactivate them for a, a broader and more general use because we no longer have individuals who need to sleep outside. So it's exciting. And then a handful of other places that sure. we can get into. So the reason you're here is is because of the Housing and Help uh, series that we produced over the last couple of years. Um, and a big part of that was going to Houston because Houston has, you know, as I often say, reduced, at least they had when we finished this, the last time I knew a few months ago, had dropped their homeless um, population, 65, 65% in the last 10 years. And Spokane's has gone up virtually the same amount, 64% in the last 10 years. So we went to Houston and filmed this series and a lot of the people that we got to interview and we were going inter- to try to interview you, but you weren't in town. Yeah. So we talked to um, an amazing group of, of eight people that you know incredibly well and have worked with for years. So, so your, your background really before you have done this, you worked in Houston and, and were basically oversaw the homeless response system, I guess, for the city of Houston. Can you talk about your, your experience there? Sure. So, you know, I came to Houston kind of through an interesting pathway. I actually was with an organization called Corporation for Supportive Housing, which is a large national nonprofit mm-hmm. intermediary um, promoting housing as a solution to complex social issues. And I was working in Texas, um, trying to actually trying to convince the Texas Department of Criminal Justice to invest in housing as a reentry solution, um, which was a fascinating experience. Um, <laughs> And I, I kind of found my way into the public defender's office in Houston, into the mental health division. And I, I said, listen, let's let's pilot some permanent supportive housing for the, for these, you know, offenders who are reentering. Um, let's do, you know, 25 or 50 units. And they just looked at me and said, we have 900. And if you can't come up with a solution for 900, we don't need, like, why are we even talking? And I was like challenge accepted think big yeah um i mean it was a it was a moment for me and um Hmm. and so what happened about the same time i mean i think it was it was just luck but the federal government had had um passed or reauthorized the mckinney vento funds in 2009 and then we're pursuing the creation of new guidance based on those new regulations in, in 2012. And in that interim, they were identifying the cities where they wanted to move the needle on homelessness. They had published a federal strategic plan for the first time. They, they had big ambitions. And Houston was bad. And Houston was really bad. And I happened to be there. <laughs> like the and, worst. and somebody had challenged me to think big. And and Corporation for Supportive Housing was one of the the HUD technical assistance providers, okay. and so I just got to. That wasn't luck. It was that luck. was supposed to be. <laughs> I don't believe that. It was luck. I believe that was the universe helping to conspire this. I think so. It, I do feel like it was all the stars aligned. You know, yeah. we had this incredible yeah. set of leaders that were happened to be in in all of the right positions, namely Mayor Anise Parker right. at the time, and so my job was under HUD technical assistance was to create a plan that could reimagine the system itself. And when we did that, Mayor Parker was more than eager to to move that into action. And so that's when um, she invited me into her administration and um, as as the first special assistant for homeless initiatives. And so that's Mm -hmm. how I ended up in government. But I, I, I feel like the way we did that in Houston was really special because 
I actually stayed employed by the Corporation for Supportive Housing. Right. So okay. I still had all of So you were employed by them even though you worked for the city. That's they paid right. your salary, which I think is super smart. They paid my salary. We contracted directly with the downtown management district for 100% of my time. The downtown management district then used an interlocal agreement to deploy me into the mayor's office and split the cost. And the reason we did that was that it formed this center of gravity between the the private sector and the public sector. And that's really what launched. Right. You got to have the public sector helping. You got to have business and community leaders that are part of this. It can't just be, um, you know, one single thing that at least that's what we learned in that. So we met with all those eight people, including Mark Eichenbaum, who now does the job that you did. He's that is still the the position is still there, which is really cool. Surviving another term. Did we talk to the right people? Absolutely. (laughs) Seriously, I'm asking. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, I think that you talk to old and new, which is even more exciting. Some of those folks were there from the Mm -hmm. very beginning, just like I was. um, And others came into it later in the process and even more recently. But I think it's a testament to um, the plan and the model that we put in place and the ability for that to transcend you know, both transition of elected leadership and the transition of the people that naturally occurs in these types of, of positions. So it's great. So, so going back, you I did a little research. So you're, you're, you did your undergrad at Kansas State. I did. And then from there, you got your master's in public health, I'm guessing, or something like that. Yes. That At Tulane. Yeah. Which I spent a day, I spent a week in Tulane, at Tulane. Once. Really? I actually lived in the dorms. <laughs> That's <laughs> we were filming, awesome. We were filming in New Orleans for a Katrina thing. And like the only place we could... They housed us. We were, it was a tour group thing, and mm-hmm. so we were all housed with them, and we kind of were embedded. And so, and uh, best crepe shop in the world. There's a great little crepe shop, and I'll never forget that at Tulane. It's badass. It was really good. So you know what's funny is that the School of Public Health and the graduate stuff is not on campus. It's oh, downtown. So you never got to. So I never, that I place. never hung out on campus. I'm more interestingly of, I'm enough. I'm more of a Tulane, uh, whatever you're, a green waiver. That's than right. You are. Than I am. I mean, I was like embedded with the medical school and the hospitals and the public health right. side of okay. things. So, um, but you also then ran a shelter. I did. So that's the thing I think is super cool because we learned a lot about shelters and we got a shelter here. And when we talked to Jessica Preheim <laughs> at the Coalition for Homeless, for the homeless in, in Houston, man, if there was a moment where she lit up and got like fired up, it was shelters are so expensive. They're just so expensive. Don't do a shelter. Whatever you are, don't do a shelter. And yet here we in Spokane, we have a shelter right now with 300 people shoved in it without running water. All kind, I mean, maybe it does today, but it hadn't at the, you know, for a good portion of time. And it's, it's really not solving anything in my mind. Um, what was your experience of like to run a shelter and what did you learn from that that you bring now to everything that you do? Yeah. I, so I ran a small shelter, but it was a mixed population. So, so single men, single women. Every shelter is important. And anywhere. children. Yeah. yeah. So I, I, I really had exposure to all of the complexities for, for all of those, those populations. It was small. Um, and what that afforded me was the ability to really learn to appreciate that shelter provides very little resolution. And that as a... a it does keep people sheltered. It, I mean, it does, it, if, you know, we get, I mean, the weather here, you know, it's five degrees below zero. They need to be inside. Somebody, you know, no one should be outside. Absolutely. So I, I'm never against that. 
Absolutely. But, but it's a permanent solution. It isn't one. Well, and the expectations we've created, I think, are, are the, the bigger design challenge in front of us. Is, is for a long time, we have created an expectation that an emergency shelter bed somehow magically solves all of the affordability crisis that created the homelessness to begin with. And the reality is, it's just providing a an overnight bed so you don't freeze to death. Right. 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 And having and it's easy to kind of to stay there. Absolutely. To say, well, you're in shelter. Everything should be fine now. The, the body is stable. I'm good. I'm, <laughs> well, I'm out of here. <laughs> but being the person responsible for the resolution right. of those individuals' lives, what we found ourselves in more often inside shelter is creating these um, false timelines for people. Like, figure something out in this timeline because we need to turn your bed over for the next person. And, and that's a really heavy burden. And so what yeah. it prompted me to do is say, we've got to do better. Really we can personal. do better than this. It's really personal. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, it's terrible. It's a, it's a terrible human interaction, you know? Yeah, and, it is. And so I, it really challenged me to start thinking about what are the better solutions? And, and that's how I came to learn and also just experiment with expanding the spectrum of care that we could offer people. So we had to, you know, shelter became... Um, a, a necessary kind of foundational activity, but really all of the investment and all of the energy needed to go into designing new programming or expanding our programming so that we could get people back into housing as quickly as possible. Like right. this idea that the shelter bed somehow magically was going to create that resolution, I learned firsthand that that wasn't in fact the case. And so it was a it was a great experience for me. I, I was there about six years. And I, I really got to test of the full breadth of every type of, of rehousing intervention that ha has existed. We had transitional housing and it was failed. And we eventually closed it and opened up rapid rehousing and permanent supportive housing and these other activities that really helped move people into housing long-term and help them stabilize. Right. And so I, it brings a lot of credibility to the work that I do today. Yeah. The fact that I've, been in the I've done all of those things. Absolutely. But, yeah. Well, so when I, you know, we got part started on this a year, two years ago almost now, um, and I think it is two years around, right about now that we started the conversation of let's tell a series and not just do this one time and walk away, but have it ongoing. And it really became pretty clear that, that to me, this is all a story problem because I'm a story guy and it's what I do. And I'm like, you know, the story, the right stories are never being told correctly, the right way. And there's these two big buzzwords out here. There's housing first, right? And then there's permanent supportive housing. And, and I'm just trying to be really simple, stand in the shoes of who, you know, just Joe everybody and, under, and go, both, first of all, they're both super complicated. I don't know what that means, so I just ignore it and it goes right by. And as we started talking about this, in fact, in Houston at a bar, I think one of the nights that we filmed, we're like, hey, you know what this is? Because we originally called this um, Beyond the Roof, which we thought was a really cool story, you know, title, but it really wasn't enough. It was like, no, this is, this is housing and help. You need both to make this work. And the narrative had been, up to that point, there are still people in this day, this day, that are uh, sort of disagree with this model of how, you're, how, how this is approaching it. You shouldn't give people housing. It's, all you're going to do is put them in a, in a house and then... And you expect them to do okay, right? So they spun the words housing mm -hmm. first mm -hmm. and made it sound like all you're doing is a house and then they're they're not gonna they're never gonna survive that. When the truth is you're giving them housing with services. Yeah. And so we thought let's rebrand this thing and call it housing and help because that just made more way more clear. Not housing with help, but and help. Because the service piece is just as important. 
do you do you agree with that? And is that you know part of? I mean, I I don't know. I think that's sort of a mission I'm kind of on. Like, can we just change how people say this? Yes. Because it will then affect how we look at it, and that's what we've been trying to do for two years. I think that's right. And and here's the way I often explain it, is that we've built a system today, or we had built a system that brought people who were in crisis into a temporary crisis environment. And we tried to concentrate services in that environment to wrap those services around individuals with the expectation that while they were in crisis, they were going to be able to take full advantage of those So I'm in the services. shelter and all of a sudden I've got some, I got some medical help. I have some, uh, you know, maybe addiction service help. Right. I've got, you know, behavioral health, health. Behavioral health. That's right. We're all, all of these, here. We're here to help you. And somehow Triage. in 30 days... Those things are magically going to, to transform me and I'm going to be completely After recovered. 20 years or, or a year on or, the streets. Or, yeah. Well, or just what any, like, I mean, you're talking about the same length of like a cold, right? That it would take you to get over a cold. I mean, these are real issues that, that many housed people deal with and they go to regular outpatient services for years and receive support. So the idea that somehow we can concentrate a whole bunch of services in crisis and fix everyone, and then they're just magically going to go off into housing. That's actually the old model. Right. And what the new model does is it says, Whoo, let's redesign this. If what we want to do is help people stabilize and recover long term. Really, really get, get yeah. off the street permanently. Let's move them to housing and let's take those services that are in, are in, in the crisis environment and wrap them, move them, and wrap them around to individuals in, in housing because... Where, that, where they're living. That way, when uh-huh. they need those services, they don't have to come back to crisis that's to right. get them. That's right. And that's the real distinction in the design. That was the push. The movement to housing first was an understanding that we didn't have the design right, that what we were trying to do is just fix people for 30 days and then push them back into housing without anything. Right. And this changed everything. So, I mean, and I just am mad because they call it housing first. It's like, dumb, dumb brand. I know. <laughs> it's, it it's a long a and old brand. Yeah, I know. Yeah. It's an old brand. So anyway, I'm on the mission to kind of change that. Um, how, you know, one of the biggest things that we talk about in our series and one of the reasons Gavin Cooley is such a big, he's our host and, and then we brought him into this and you're, you're here today with him. Um, you're in Spokane. Why are you here? Maybe talk through that, and I'll tell you how you know my experience with Gavin and how he got connected. But really, I asked Gavin to be a part of this uh, this series because I I thought um, it was really important to focus on some common ground that everybody can stand on, whether you're right, con- you know, or left, conservative, you know, progressive, wherever you are on the issue, whether you um, that that money is a common ground thing. It's something we all understand something we all kind of care about um, and the reality that we learned in Houston and, and honestly did not know until we got to Houston <laughs> till Tal Costas um, from search one of the homeless uh, groups there that does work on the ground with the people uh, that are on the street said you know if you house somebody in Houston if, you, if somebody's on the street in Houston this was a year ago or two it was a year ago the cost to ha- the cost to that, that all of us as taxpayers pay is $96,000 a year. If that person is housed with services, it's 17. And that was the moment it was like, oh, this is the argument and why I, I wanted Gavin as a C, former CFO, right, who understands money 
to explain to us, this is not cost effective. We are, by doing nothing, spending five times more than we should. Um, and, and that's why I thought that was important. And now here you are, you know, a year later, this series has kind of helped spawn bringing a lot of people together in that model. And we'll talk about it a little bit, but, but, um, Gavin has now taken that baton, right? And along with Teresa Sanders, who former city uh, um, manager, I believe, or worked for the city at a really high level, um, not city manager, but but worked for the mayor, <clears throat> mayor's office, and Rick Romero, who ran utilities there. The three of them on their own, um, not paid, <laughs> volunteering, yeah. they're all retired, have decided, hey, we're going to take the baton of this this series where everybody is really kind of paying attention. Um, and that means that at least to start with the municipalities. And I want to ask you why that's important. But from what I understand, 19 of the 20 municipalities that service, serve this area, um, from the city to the city of Spokane Valley to Liberty Lake to all the, all the areas around the county and the city, have, have assigned an agreement of some kind, which I'm asking what that is, um, to, to, to join in a regional effort the way Houston has, rather than take the dollars that are existing right now that kind of are, are not coordinated and help coordinate how, how dollars get spent to solve the problem. Is that right? And where am I wrong? <laughs> and, and, and what are you here to do this week? Yeah, no, I think you're right. Um, you, the lesson of Houston is that it, it takes the entire village. And the way that village comes together in every other city across the country looks a little different depending on its unique makeup and circumstance. So so here in, in the Spokane region, you're, you're talking about a, a pretty substantial number of municipalities, each with independent authorities. Um, and, and, and there needed to be a way to really ask the question, you know, can we all come together and, and operate from one playbook? Can And can we create a structure that really institutionalizes that practice? Um, and I think that that's the question that's been been asked of the community. And, and as you stated, I think the community has um, kind of overwhelmingly come back and said, this is really worth considering. We really want to continue to I mean, push in this direction. I heard last week that there is not maybe in the certainly in the last 20 years, maybe the last 50 years, there's never been anything that all 19 of the 20 have ever agreed on. Really, I don't think there's ever been any any initiative that that many of these, you know, um, municipalities have sort of agreed, yeah, we want to do this. So what are they agreeing to? So uh, what they're agreeing or to... what do you hope they agree to? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I think what they're agreeing to at this point is to to genuinely lean in and explore together, okay. um, moving in a direction of creating a regional authority where um, all of the resources could be coordinated from a single place under a single playbook. Um, and that exploration involves thinking through exactly what the, the legal structure of that is, what's the authority that is granted, um, what's, what are the resources that move into that space. Um, and, and, you know, I think one of the things that is real on this particular issue is that there's no single set of resources that are just for homelessness, right? Homelessness involves many of the other sectors that, that we've already mentioned. It, be, it involves healthcare and behavioral health and employment and safety, public safety response. And so we can't just round up all the resources from those systems and put them in, into a regional authority. But what we can do is start to be much more intentional with the way in which we do that. And how do we carve out those resources to fully maximize and use, utilize those resources to produce a, a resolution to the homeless crisis, 
um, rather than right just um, a, a management strategy of the status quo. And I think that's really the commitment on the part of, of these folks. And what I do is just provide some some. I've been there, done that. Advice. Um, a, and don't in, do this. I saw that it didn't work. <laughs> yeah, That's huge. Yeah, insights from, from other communities. So cool that they brought you in. Yeah, it's great. But what is what is awesome is that I don't know this community in right. depth. And so you have all of these incredibly um, talented local individuals who know the community inside and out and so can take what I can offer and, and really consider that and apply it through the lens but of But they're Spokane. at the table together. They're like, okay, we're listening. That's never been done. That's right. Yeah. There's not 19 of 20 municipalities. It's not Liberty Lake and Genie and those smaller, you know, areas or groups. It is 19 of the 20 elected officials in the city of Spokane, the city of Spokane Valley, and the county. Yeah. Which is enough. <laughs> like those those 19 of 20 are agreeing to sit at the table and talk about this. So I know you haven't been here. This is you just got here. This well, is- like. This is my first We're, time. The first stop is Corner Booth Media. I think that is so smart of you to do. Anyway, um, no, I'm just honored that you're you're here first. Um, and tomorrow you're going to spend a bunch of time, right, with with all these guys. But you've done some research and you've looked at numbers and you've looked at Spokane. What do you What have you found about Spokane that 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 you're going to bring tomorrow to this meeting? Well, I think it's what less have you learned. Yeah, I mean, I I don't know that. I would be in a position to necessarily, you know, provide kind of well, conclusive analysis. I'm absolutely, I think more of my responsibility is to bring insights from outside of this space and to also react and reflect to what's being considered and, and, and to, to support that. As I've done some preliminary analysis, just looking, I mean, it certainly raises a lot of interesting questions and, and I, I you know, what the data at a surface level really suggests is that the primary driver of your increasing homelessness problem is an affordability issue at its core. Yeah, no and, doubt. And while, and, and this is really consistent with new research that- And that's that, not everywhere, right? No, is, that that is really consistent with new national level research okay. that, that basically indicates that a, a couple of things that I think are really important. So that it's really the structural problems in the housing market that that's the primary driver of homelessness across the country. And they know that because when you look at um, communities with some of the highest rates of homelessness. If the actual drivers were some of the other things that, that folks tend to consider, which is mental health and behavior, uh, substance use issues and mm-hmm. poverty, mm-hmm. you would then, in the communities that have the highest rates of homelessness, you would see higher rates of all of those things. And what the new research has shown us is that, in fact, that's not the case. In some, of, in many of the places that have the highest rates per capita, you're seeing lower rates of poverty, really, behavioral health, and substance use huh. disorders. And what that really points to then, and then what they did is they went and looked at additional research that examined affordability in those communities. And what they found is that the highest rates of per capita homelessness were also associated with some of the most substantial changes in affordability. And and from what we've learned, I mean, Gavin was telling me earlier that we now, Spokane is now popping up in the top 10, right, of per capita highest homeless populations in this country. Yes. And so the the other insight that this this research offers us and and what I was able to potentially see in your data in my surface analysis is that 
the the issues of behavioral health and substance use and poverty, they're all precipitating factors. And so um, there was an author in The Atlantic um, who, who wrote about this, basically describing it like a game of musical chairs. So if you know that there aren't enough chairs, the, the biggest and the strongest kids, they're going to get the chairs. And the kids with some of the most challenges, they're going to be, they're not going to get a chair, they're going to be pushed out. And so when we know that there's an affordability crisis, the things that would normally not necessarily push us all the way into homelessness, like mental health and substance use, because there are plenty of housed people who have those, those, issues. those issues. Absolutely. But when you couple that with a lack of affordability, those are the individuals that tend to be most susceptible to falling out, but, but not the only ones susceptible to falling out. And so they're precipitating factors, but, but not, but not right. the only factors. Because one of the big pieces that we sort of researched and, and pushed out in the show was, was a really simple graph that said over the last three years, um, the cost of a home in Spokane has gone from, I think it was 220000 to four hundred and fifty. It's like 73% in three years. The cost of, of, of buying a home and consequently renting, those costs have gone up through the roof where the, 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 um, the percentage of the increase in, in income was like 14. And that is absolutely what's happening here. Cause we've, you know, in, when we filmed at Camp Hope, which, you know, at, I mean, Mark Eichenbaum told me he thought that it was the largest encampment in America at 650 people, which today is now 60 people and, and on its way out. And we can talk about that a little bit, but, but you know, when you've got that many people, when we, we were there, we asked them how many, how many people here are, are working. 50% of the people at that height of the 650 actually had jobs yeah, and still could not afford a place to, to, to live when your rent was at, you know, 600 and now it's 14 in three, you know, in three years, you have nowhere to live. You're living in your car, you're doing wherever else you can be. And I think that's, that's exactly what's going on here. And it, you know, it's not the only place in America, but it certainly is a big factor here. Yeah, actually, I think many communities are reeling fr from these conditions. And it's been very rapid, a rapid transition. And so like anything else, I hope it, there's a bit of an accordion effect here. So I hope what we can see is some stabilization and, and even a reverse in that market slightly. So we, we start to see some relief when we can get our arms around this and we see fewer people displaced. The, the challenge that I think is that, that we have to consider, though, is that we're not necessarily changing our policies and our design strategies when it comes to driving economic development and growth in our cities. Hmm. So somehow we simultaneously have big goals and dreams for how to revitalize our downtowns and, and reactivate our communities and, and allow kind of the developers and to, to drive um, the creation of, of all of those amenities and the housing that accompanies those. And so we're, we're, we're focused on those things and we're recognizing a crisis in homelessness, but somehow we fail to, to associate that these, these two things are absolutely intertwined. Right. And that if we don't, as we're thinking about revitalization of these communities, if we don't manage for gentrification and displacement right. of naturally occurring affordable housing environments, <clears throat> if we don't think about intentionally infusing affordability into our community broadly, then we're actually going to perpetuate the problem. Right. And so what that leaves homeless it's, response systems to do is just to increasingly have to buy our way back into the market. And to your point, 
the economics work that way too. Right, because I mean, so. you know, one of the things we talked about is Spokane's probably never been more healthy and booming. I mean, it's amazing, and we've and we talked a little bit about before we started that we we have created this problem through success that we deem successful, and because one of the questions I have is, well, then how do we? We are also underhoused by twenty five percent in this in this community. There is not enough places for people to live, and building is starting. And but the difference is. Are we building single family homes that people can't afford or are we building a, a, a variety of different kinds of housing that not everybody right now wants in their neighborhood? Am I hitting that correctly? Is that part of the challenge? I think that's that's absolutely part of the challenge. And in all fairness, because builders want to build, builders want to build. But most of the time, builders build um what those who loan the money, right? Yeah. Deem least risky. Okay. And oh, so... Yeah. Well, that makes sense. So he, here is kind of the kind of self-fulfilling prophecy in all of this is that as we push people out, as they become disillusioned and disenfranchised from our society and they're forced into a survival orientation, I mean, they're literally surviving day to day outside yeah. without anything. Right. The behaviors of that society start to look very different than the society that you and I live in as a housed individual with lots of other right. luxuries. They become not human almost or... Well, less, we, less we than, certainly they're not perce- like us. We certainly perceive them that way, Correct. right? Yeah. And all of a sudden now, developing housing where those individuals can live is perceived as risky. As, less, yeah, yeah, as risky. Right. And so the economics just don't ever naturally support creating that affordability. So it really starts at a kind of a fundamental values level at, at, at that has to then drive policy and then drive practice. And there's not a city across the country that I can point to right now that's that's cracked that yeah, formula. That's, well, maybe we can do it. I mean, we got everybody talking. So one of the other pieces that I I learned we learned a lot because <laughs> I didn't know anything, and I feel like I just now know, know enough to be dangerous, you know, enough to hold a conversation with you. I think. Great. But but what, one of the things that that I, I was kind of struck by that we heard a lot of when I first wrote the script it was you know um, the homeless population. And we had some really great people that we kind of ran this by who had had lived experience of being homeless themselves say, you know, that's not really what I would prefer you call that. <laughs> I wouldn't, I'd rather that you not say homeless population, but people experiencing homelessness. Okay. These are people. And it was profound, the experience that we had of who we met and what they were going through, especially at Camp Hope. We, there was a couple there that we met. That we'll never forget as long as I live. It's the hardest thing I've ever filmed. Um, she had been a nurse, I think, about 18 months before she had been housed there. Fully, fully employed, had, had worked for years, and everything went wrong. And here she was, you know, having to live there. And I'm just like, why are you living here? Why would you not go to a shelter? You know, like that. I didn't understand. And I don't think anybody does. And she said, well, I can shut my door. I actually, I tent to her was a door. I can shut the door and I can feel safe. Don't you want to shut your door at night? And I was like, yeah, absolutely. When she said that again, I was like, okay, I get it, you know? And if I go to a shelter, everything's taken from me. All my possessions, including her son's urn with his ashes in it, might be subject to being taken from her. I mean, you know, that kind of stuff is real. And, and you begin to kind of understand this is not just 
people choosing this, <laughs> at least not the way it is right now. Some people I think maybe do. I don't know the answers to that. We haven't studied. I didn't spend enough time understanding that. But the reality of, you know, the the dignity that is needed and, and being lost there um, was, we didn't, wasn't lost on us, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And now, thankfully, we think because of the series, I mean, Julie told us that those people are now housed and they're, they're doing well and they're in permanent supportive housing with services. Um, yeah, it's great. It's a great accomplishment. But that, that still, you know, is the problem of, of sort of affordability. And, you know, there isn't housing. You know, there just isn't. Well, and... The, and what do you do in the meantime? The hard truth in all of this is that, you know, as we build systems that can be responsive to the condition of homelessness and we can remedy that, that state of homelessness, we, these systems are not remedying poverty, right? These individuals Correct. in large part, while in permanent supportive housing, now they have, we are it, ensuring they have a place to and live. And it's not rendering behavioral health or mental health or... Well, I think we can do a lot there to bring services and wrap those yes, services around sure. those individuals. And you are. Um, yeah, absolutely. But these individuals still fall below the poverty level and they still could not afford to live without that subsidized right. housing. Right. And and that is just a central truth in all of this. We either have to decide that we're going to invest in that. That's right. Or not. That's right. And if we don't, it's costing us five times more than if we did. That's right. Even if we consciously don't think that's the right thing to do and even if right even if we fixed everyone so you know for those who think that it's you know if we just fix someone's mental health or we just fix their substance use the hard truth under all of that is that they still could not afford to live right well yeah no matter how stable you are you know if you can't afford to live somewhere you're going to end up on the street and that and now cycle you're of in a trauma whole new world. and that cycle oh. of crisis and, the, and, and right, right. everything that comes with it. Right, right, right. So yeah. how important is it? I mean, I guess what I was trying to get to is the voice of those who are, who have lived experience and who have been homeless or are currently experiencing homelessness. How important is that to the, the, the conversations you're going to have over the next couple of days with, with, with officials that are here? Because it really, in my mind, you know, you've got to get the municipalities on board before you can do anything else, right? You've got to have the money in place, but you also need to have people with lived experience or have, or that currently are homeless, a part of the conversation. As much as you need to have the service providers that are providing this, this work and business, how do you get all those guys together and how'd you do it in Houston? <laughs> There's an easy well, question. Well, not, not all at once. Um, I mean, I, I think part of this yeah. comes, you know, becomes a way. But those of, are the players, am those, I right? Those are the players, okay. and it becomes a way of doing business, a continue, a, a way of doing business continuously, which is we set up structures that allow and engage all of those voices in very intentional ways at all of the ex, like the the exact right level, so that those voice those voices can have power. And, and can drive action. And I think that's a really important feature yeah. here, right? So there, you know, when we start talking about the, the voice of lived expertise, I think it first starts by saying- Ooh, lived expertise, I like that. Yeah, so- That's really true. It, oh, it's, so it cool. starts by saying that voice <laughs> as a constituent has to be as powerful as the voice of the housed. Yeah. And so it's like, you know, we start there. But, but then when it comes to the homeless response system itself, it's really about, um, that lived expertise is not necessarily in, you know, complex governance 
uh, across governmental jurisdictions. That lived expertise is really in how we deliver services. It's in what those individuals need. And so it's it's how do we infuse that that voice in those implementation spaces? And that's not yet in the process. That's right. We're not there yet. That's right. right. Step one is what you're at right now. And what is step one? How do you explain that to people that are curious? I I think the best way is that there is a a broad community conversation that's taking place. And like any community conversation, it's going to happen in different pockets with a different mix of stakeholders, including those who are experiencing homelessness themselves. And this process, it's really important that we give space for that community conversation to, to, to occur. And then we use what we glean from all of those conversations at all of those levels to drive a next set of recommendations for how to move into action. But that first step of action is defining the structure that's going to give us the ability to do what I just described. And those conversations is- are going on. I mean, it was last week at the you know public library, which is really cool space downtown that this new new library space there was i mean there must have been 250 people and it was everybody it was you know gavin was there and 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 trees you know the group that is sort of pulling this together um but there were a lot of elected officials there there were a lot of people experiencing homelessness there there were um people from all the service providers business was there i mean it was i've never seen <laughs> a collection of that many people Typically, they don't all show, you know, on a Thursday night when they could be doing a lot of other things. So, you know, you've you've got everybody's attention right now. And I think everybody is realizing and hopefully this this series has helped, you know, at least wake people up to this is just going to get worse. It's not going to get better unless everybody agrees and does this together. And it's not going to be easy. Is that true? That That's true. It's not going to be easy. You can't quit. The work itself is hard work. But I, I will say that what as an outsider looking in, I think the journey in Spokane has been one uh, of, you know, kind of incredible evolution. It's pretty fast, honestly. <laughs> pretty fast, but it's also a reflection of, I think, what once divided everyone is now starting to bring everyone together. Yeah. You're galvanizing yeah. as a community around an issue. And I think yeah. just what you described and the yeah. number of people oh. who showed up from such a, you know, a wide spectrum, oh. right, of your community. That's true. You're galvanizing. Yeah. And, no, it's and cool. the structure is how you're going to institutionalize those values that everyone is, is coming together around. Um, and, and then, yeah, the, re- the real hard work begins, <laughs> which is, you know, putting everyone to action. Who now, does what? Who, who does what? But I don't want to diminish what your service providers are already doing day oh, in and no. day out, I mean, right? They are doing hard work. Phenomenal. But, but the reality is there's not a single organization service organization that can that can solve homelessness in its entirety it's going to take the entire ecosystem and what this structure is about is helping that whole ecosystem grow together and we we without that structure to support that to your point you said it at the at the top everybody is investing differently in different ways, in different programs, at different times, and expecting those service providers to meet everyone's expectations all at once. What's the definition of insanity? Uh-huh. <laughs> so, <laughs> so we're, we're going to fix that. That's, yeah, that's I think at hope. least people know that, oh, this is not working. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of where you can get. You know, Gavin and I presented to the city council, had an amazing opportunity to do that. You know, and it was, you know, it's a, you're talking to everybody from right, right to left, and they were unanimously in agreement that we should do something. And I'm like, really? You guys are? Like, I just ex- didn't expect that. I don't know anything. You know, Gavin's there all the time and has done this for 18 years and understands 
how that operates. But we showed three or four clips and talked to everybody through what we learned. And they're all like, let's go tomorrow. Let's go right now. Like they just got it. And I think it's maybe just, okay, we're fed up to here. But I think the money piece was big. It's like it's kind of a nice excuse in some ways. It's like we're just throwing money away and we don't need to. And nobody, it's not helping. It's I, just not. I think people are hungry across this country for an answer to yeah. this issue. And that hunger can sometimes, you know, create a behavior where you just grab at anything. And what you guys have been able to do is say, Let, let's organize ourselves. Let's, let's be thoughtful. Let's figure out what the right thing is. And, and I think that's what you've been able to present is we, we found what we believe is going to work and we're going to organize so that this can be the solution for our community. And who would, who would say no to that? Right. How, how uh, scale of one to 10, I don't know you at all. So I have no idea how optimistic you are. Cause like, I'm a crazy optimist. I'm pretty optimistic. Okay, good. <laughs> you're in my tribe. You're in my tribe. Of course, what am I talking about? You're way more optimistic than I am. How a uh, scale of one to 10 we can get this solved in America. We can manage homelessness. 10. If 10 is like the most okay. optimistic you can be. Okay. I mean, we can, I'm, it I'm can optimistic happen. this is possible. Absolutely. And I think with, I think with good leadership, anything is possible. I think there are legitimate structural challenges in front of us and it, it would force us to make some hard choices. But the yeah. thing that my experience has taught me and I said this a little bit earlier, which is I can build a system to be responsive to this issue right. without fixing all of the structural issues. You just have to keep paying for it. Right. And, 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 it can and be keep an, paying and for it. And the economics will work. But if you want to get out, if you want to pay less here, there are other choices that you can make. Yeah, because right? I think the most frustrating thing, I think, for most Americans are we're on the right track. We're doing really well. Oh, administration loses. There's a new one in, new sheriff in town. Throw it all out. Just when you're about to get there, right? And one of the things that happened in Houston that was really good is that the current mayor, is it Mayor Taylor? Current, current mayor of Houston. Mayor Turner. Mayor Turner. Mm -hmm. Sorry. He, he has continued on and, in fact, probably ratcheted up what yeah. Mayor Parker has done. Is that true? And, and I think that's a big lesson to learn because no matter who takes over at any time, when there's a regime change, all of this work can be subject to being lost. Am I right about that or not? No, I think that's... Or is this kind of system built... To make that foolproof, you know what I mean, like, are there are there safety wall, a firewall around that, so an administration can't come and throw it all out? I don't know. Uh, yes and no. Okay. I mean, I think one of the the values of having the lead agency in Houston as a nonprofit disconnected from government is that we can create. A, a space to maintain that and hold that structure. Right. Even, it isn't dependent on a, on a right. city or a municipality of one kind yeah. or another. So, so what we risk... As long as it's funded. As long as it's funded. So what we risk is we risk slowing down because we can't we can't unlock as many of the resources within government that we may have given a you know a particular administration, and and so we did try to build it so it was a little bit foolproof. But I think what it also has demonstrated is that because it existed and it could continuously produce um, wins, it's hard for an administration under those circumstances on such a complex when it's working to 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 come in to stop and, and, and undo it. In, it's much easier to say, I'm going to double down and make this my own in my own way. And right. I think that is the legacy. I mean, Mayor Parker understood that this was not going to be solved during her tenure. Right. She knew what she was doing was building a foundation for someone else. Right. 
And I think that they they have been able to, as two mayors on this issue, each own their particular piece of this. And the, the next mayor that's coming equally has an opportunity to take it and define it at a next level that sure, neither of those right. mayors could have ever achieved. And Ooh. so that's the the possibility. She she is amazing. Mm-hmm. Like I, I we get to spend a day with her, which was <laughs> incredible. What did you learn from her? What was it like to work for Anise Parker? I mean, I just find her okay. so badass awesome. <laughs> I was so completely spoiled because I had never worked in government like that before. That's probably why you were so good. Maybe, but I think this is why I was so good. I mean, first of all, she recognized in me that, you know, what I didn't understand about myself and gave me that opportunity. But it's because of the leader that she is. And I did not fully appreciate that until she was gone. And I started working for other mayors in other cities. And I was like, oh, she was really different and really special. Uh Uh-oh. So what I learned from her, what she did, and and I'll never forget this, I came in kind of in my first week on the job, and I was like, okay, so should we meet, and I'm going to walk you through the plan? And she said, no, I hired you. Here's my political capital. Go make this happen. No elected official behaves that way, but that's the also the expectation that that she places upon you. She she says, "I'm, I'm here to unlock whatever you need, I'll block and tackle I'll for you. I'll block and tackle yeah. for you. And and the thing that I, I loved about her that I rarely hear in anyone else, and, and Houston is a unique structure because it is a strong mayor system and the mayor is, is in essence the CEO we of the city. We have that here. Yeah. And what Mayor Parker said, I'll never forget, is she's, she said, I love the minutia of government. Oh, she does. She does. Well, I know. We had to pull her and Gavin apart because they're both econ- <laughs> economists and they're just like getting in the weeds. And I'm like, dude, you got, what are you talking about? But 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 imagine someone <laughs> loves who, it. who leads from that place. And so what she does is she says, I'm going to surround myself with the people who yeah. are experts. Yeah. And I'm then try to. going to use everything <laughs> that I have, my own talents, to clear that runway for you to drive and implement. And yep. it was the most amazing experience wow. that I have never been a part of in, in anywhere else in any city that I've worked in, which is which wow. is pretty awesome. So this is happening in other places, right? We're seeing Atlanta. Yeah. They're, I think, 40% anyway it's yes. dropped. Chicago, am I right about Chicago? I don't know. Where else is it happening is the question, I guess. And, and, and so we're seeing... This model or this regional approach or this consolidated, hey, we're going to all get together and make this work other places too, correct? Yeah, I mean... I th- They're going to all do their own thing, their own way, but... That's right. I think a, a lot of different um, cities are, are, are seeing the opportunity from both the Houston story, but from their own experiences. So places like Indianapolis has adopted the model and, and are really starting to, to make things move. I was there a couple years ago and it was, yeah. Like yeah. It, I mean, I, it wasn't a... I felt the experience was, you know, not crazy. It wasn't, it was much more visible here. Homelessness was much more visible in Spokane than it was in Indianapolis when I was there yeah. two years ago. Yeah. Um, Chicago has a long history of, of being a bit of a consolidated entity. Uh-huh. Um, and they've experimented with different ways in which to pull that model together. But appreciating in a place like Chicago, as the mayor changes, everything changes, changes when it comes to the conditions of how how all of those things are structured. Um, and so I think it's been an interesting kind of experiment for them as with each administration, how they respond and, and maintain that structure in different ways. So what are we missing in America, maybe, and what, what does Spokane need to do? 
Well, I think Spokane is doing what it needs to do, which, which is, yeah. is focusing on its structure. I, I think there's a second part of this conversation that, that has to come pretty quickly, which is um, setting a vision and some prioritization for action because governance is really important and setting up this structure, but it takes time to, to go through these things. And the, the reality is, and what we did in Houston, is that we didn't wait on that structure to be fully implemented before we started acting toward those larger goals. Um, and, and we started setting priorities so that we could be targeted and focused. And it was really those things happening in parallel that helped us build a stronger system. Um, and, and really validate that structure. It also took everything out of theory and put it into the practical and practice. And there's something just really powerful in that. Yeah, triage um, all the time. Well, yeah, and, and let's Learning. be honest, the service providers themselves, their jobs day to day are to be interacting with clients. And every time we pull them into one of these theoretical conversations about things, we're pulling them away from the ability to drive. And so the sooner we can move into a structure and start to work in parallel, the sooner we are pulling those providers into a space to say, okay, let's go get these 25 folks housed right. using this structure line, and man. let's just figure it out together. Right. And so everything then becomes a reinforcement. How do I get of, them? Right, because I remember we, when we talked to Mayor Parker, she's like, hey, there's 80 beds open tonight somewhere, but they all have their own little requirements about whether I can get, screw it, man, throw it all out. like." Let's get those. Let's get eighty people in those beds. Yep. And you guys kind of focused there, didn't you? We that did. kind of like, let's go. We we did, and and what and then you what learned. Mayor Parker never like fully understood is that the way we did that is we we all we were like, how about you just take ten of those beds and do this different uh-huh. for the next week and see right. how that works. And they come back and they're like, hey, that worked pretty good. And we're like. Why don't we do some more? How about like another that? week? <laughs> and but but because because yeah, you're yeah. meeting Hopefully on a, a, a cycle like that, you can move people pretty quickly. Wow. Yeah, it, wore, it just kept building. Yeah, but if but imagine like had she made the public statement, oh, we're gonna take those eighty beds, it would have no, become no, no, a no, fight, no. right? right. Would she just become, started, She just sort of said, we got to make that happen. No, no, no. Somehow. She was just like, and I was like, got it. Yeah. But we used a change management strategy, and we used that structure and to learn. to move people, and we we created space to listen. So as those providers said, ooh, we're really nervous, we're uncomfortable, we said, okay, tell us what makes you uncomfortable. What can we do to help you move through that? Oh, like it's too much to do all 80 at once? Well, let's try 10. You know, it's like it really is about working in coordination and creating space for disagreement, but a commitment to act one way or the other and to learn together. And, you know, We'll make a decision to go one direction, and if it doesn't prove to be, you know, what this half of the room thinks it is, and it's actually the, what the other half of the room, then we'll change course. But we're going to find out in seven days. And we're going to have the ability to make those decisions and the authority to do it. Yeah, exactly. That's really the key. And it's that's where the regional it, try authority. Try it, screw up, go the other way, mm-hmm. but at least make a decision. That's right. Fail and fast. Ch- fail fast. Yeah, that's for, okay. Um, two. I really have two questions left. I could talk to you forever. This is so Likewise. cool. Thanks for doing this. Um, I, we got to have more housing. We have to have a lot of different kinds of housing. What do we do? Because there are restrictions on what builders can build. And are we, what is, what does this region need to do? The county's got different rules than the city does. You know, I mean, there's a huge amount of housing being built in Idaho, just over the border, 30 miles away. That's not being built here. Why is it not being built here? Are there too many restrictions on that? Does there need to be some kind of just big, bold, you know, I mean, in, in the 1940s, People came back from war 
and there weren't houses in this town. And, you know, they made a, like it or not, good or bad, ramifications maybe, but, the, you know, entire neighborhood, Shadel Park, like, got built overnight with a lot of, you know, these little post-war houses that housed a ton of people. It was a crisis then. We're in a similar situation here. Is there something bold that just needs to happen on the on the building front? Initiatives that have to happen? And I'm talking everything from, you know, affordable housing in, in apartment-like stuff, every kind of sort of housing. But also, I mean, if it needs to come down to, you know, uh, a tiny home situation. I mean, I've seen a few in Seattle that work really well with services on the site. Does it have to be every kind? What What do you do there? Well, I, I think you need a good spectrum of housing. And they need to be affordable or people can't afford they can't. You're yeah. still going to be on the street. That's right. You need a good spectrum of housing. You, you need different types of housing environments. You know, I, I have real mixed feelings about the tiny home movement. And I just want to mm. say it, it, it's, a, it's a mobile home. I mean, we've had a history in this country of having mobile homes. And there's a reason why we did when we did in this country, because they responded to an affordability need. Right. In the in the 70s and 80s, right. in a way that was very powerful, and and so I think it, you know, kind of circling all the way back. It's not to you, permanent enough for you. Maybe. No, I'm fine with I, I, the 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 tiny home movement for me is um, more about the unwillingness of people to accept that in every neighborhood. Oh, I see. Right? If if it's such a great solution, then every a, neighborhood should, should have, have it. Should right. have it. Right. And if you don't right. like a mobile home park, you you actually don't love tiny homes. You love tiny homes when they're out of town in a village where, or in a where super every, urban area that's everyone defined. can go. Yeah, right. yeah, or yeah. they're a handful of, and they're a boutique model that isn't necessarily this, you know, if you can't put them in every neighborhood, it's not a scalable solution. It doesn't solve your problem. So it comes back to your very, I very. Mean, our very first episode, um, yeah, our economist that, that was in the conversation with us, the professor from, from Eastern, his, his whole comment was you really got to have, you really have to have. You know, your homeless population has to be dispersed, <laughs> not all in one enclosed area. And they need to be, you know, you have to have all kinds of housing for them right. in but, every neighborhood all over. And it's not just, you know, homeless people, right? It's people who would live at lower income levels. It's a socioeconomic issue Correct. that has to be considered in, in the way we build across the city. So we, you know, we need a bold strategy. But if you look at the 40s, the reason why we were all willing to do what you just described is that we had, as an entire country, right, we had just come off of rations, yeah, right? We had right. all had a shared experience. There was a, a more of a level playing field than sure. there ever had been before. Yeah. And far fewer haves and have nots. Right. And everybody was struggling, really. That is not the moment that we yeah. are in in this country. And so we need to get back to a place where community can accept that this this is what it's going to take for us to have a healthy community. And the role that government plays in that um, is a complex one, given where, where things because are today. Because socioeconomically, there's a huge divide here. There's a that huge divide not there in the of 40s. haves and have-nots. Correct. And all of the haves mm. don't necessarily feel like they have to give in to accommodate the have-nots. Oh, I mean... And so until you're really willing to grapple really with that issue... To, to have... Yeah, a mobile home park around your corner. Yeah. Then we're not going to maybe get there. Um, last question I have. If you could wave your magic wand and, and do anything, 
to affect change here in Spokane and everywhere, what would it be? You get the keys to the car. <laughs> okay, this is where my mind goes Are too, two things. too detailed, too complex. <laughs> but um, I think one well, of the... Well, this is good then. I'm glad we're talking. <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the things that I'm intrigued by is this idea of how to incentivize the um, market to respond to the housing demand. I, I, I'm very interested. Like, I just feel like yeah. in my core, right. That's there has of, to be some new financial happened, mechanism. If that happened, that it would... This... It would it would change things. At scale, yes. So what are you thinking? Oh, there's so many things, but they're so complex and deep and not right. Um, I, it, but this has been a years-long journey. So so just explain that a little bit. So if there's some way that those building homes or building that, that the builders could create something and be incentivized the right way to build the diverse kind of housing that we need, it would, and everybody would win, then that would be cool. So like... A long time ago, when when things were more even, it was just it was just making the deal pencil, right? We just had to make it so that it right. it was modestly profitable to, right. to develop the housing. Right. That I've accepted that that's just not realistic. Right. And so what it really comes down to is we have to find a way to legitimately monetize social return. And and there is some there is a movement in this country with the millennials and Gen Z oh, yeah. where their value structure is very different than previous generations. Yep. And so as shareholders They're realistic. now, well, but as share, well, I mean, yes and no, right. As shareholders, for example, of publicly traded companies, all of a the sudden they've decided and attached value to particular social um, items. And these public stocks are now scored based on those social items, which right. then directly affects the stock price if that score isn't what right. it is. Like all of a sudden we're starting to toy around with this idea of how to monetize social return. Right. Um, and that is the tip of the iceberg and way out of my kind of field but of you knowledge. Know, but I just but said I'm you get to wave, your, you get to wave that, your magic wand. That's, that's what it is. I want to figure out. What do you out, want to have happen? I want to figure out how to monetize social return so that in our capitalist society, we can find balance. Okay. I'm lost. I know. I so told you're saying, you. So you're saying so 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 that then it would make it make it so that there would be homes for everyone. That's right. That we okay. would develop. That's really what you want. We would develop a ton of housing for all income levels. Be, because See, because I believe you don't have the to, economics you, work. You don't always have to figure. I mean, you do have to figure every, every, everything out. But to start, you have to just say what you want to have you have happen. To plant a seed. Yeah. You do. You have to say it, and then hope that the universe comes and figures helps you figure it out. Um, and, and let let it happen, right? Yeah. So you're what you're really saying is, if if we had housing that was affordable for everybody in this region, which we had ten years ago, the the pe there would be less people experiencing homelessness. Yep. I think so too. I mean, that's really the root of it. It's really the root of it. And then behind that, I want to keep and, and we re want people to be redesigning and systems happy. so that right. all of those pieces are connected and that those in people a really are healthy and happy, way. That that's they have right. housing and help. That's right. If I had a magic wand, that's what I would do. All the housing we need, and then I'd go redesign every system so that it all connected and wow. worked beautifully. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Really go fun. go get them tomorrow. Go, good luck. This probably won't come out for like a few weeks, so when it does come out, people will go, that worked? That was cool? So you got to be there first. That was great. Yeah, good luck with everybody. It's Thank a great you. community. You're going to love everybody here. Yeah. Yeah. I already do. No, I mean, really. It's If anybody can do it, we can do it. I believe that. Yeah. Yeah. Wholeheartedly. All right. Cheers. Cheers. MIP podcast was filmed at the studio of Corner Booth Media. Please share to like, subscribe, and follow.
You can also listen to us on Spotify, Apple Music, and anywhere podcasts can be found. We'd love it if you'd rate, review, and subscribe to help our podcast grow. Be good to yourself. Stay interesting.